listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local news, music, and culture. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. As a reminder, Jackson Unpacked is now available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you're an avid KHOL fan, you might also know that we actually started making this show in February. So coming up on today's episode, we're excited to rebroadcast some of our favorite stories from last winter before we officially launch the podcast in April. Stay tuned to hear from a Jackson music therapist about the many ways her work is helping local seniors. There's no other stimuli that has that kind of global effect on the brain. Plus, we'll tag along on a recent mission to equip Moose and Wilson with GPS collars in order to study wildlife movements. A day like that makes you happy to be a wildlife biologist in Jackson Hole. But first, Jackson Hole's real estate market shattered records last year, surpassing 2019's total sales volume by late October. The boom has led to increased work for local contractors, but many of those same workers often struggle to find housing they can afford. KHOL's Will Walkie reports. Almost as authentically Jackson Hole as the whistle of an elk bugle or the carve of a powder turn are sounds like this. The framing of new homes on vacant lots and the hammering and sawing of gutted remodels seem to be everywhere. For many contractors, it's a good time to be in business. Brandon Mansfield builds custom metalwork for doors, fireplaces, or anything else a client wants. He says everyone involved in construction, from printers that make architectural drawings to landscapers, had a great business year in 2020. All the trades right now, just from talking to, you know, friends that are electricians and framers and plumbers. Yeah, it seems like everybody has more work than they know what to do with and, and can be picking and choosing. That's picking and choosing who you work for what kind of work you do, and also picking and choosing your price. Mansfield says he's seen more new clients this year, but hasn't been able to add new staff or scale up services yet. He lost his business in the 2008 recession and has since worked hard to build his shop up. I mean, we worked out of old horse barns and, I mean, dilapidated buildings that we were paying a thousand bucks a month for, you know, being able to have our own shop. Like many other industries in Wyoming, Jackson's real estate market has historically played out in boom or bust cycles. The past seven years or so have been a nonstop bull run, and last year was the biggest boom of them all. You know, in June, it <laughs> the lights turned on and people were quick to get out of the city. And it was it was a summer to remember for sure. Ryan Block is an associate broker for the Jackson Hole Real Estate Associates. Block's been working in real estate in Jackson since 2004, and he says he's never seen anything like 2020. Sales topped more than $2.3 billion, about 90% more than in 2019, according to a recent market report. Block says people are moving here in droves for a better lifestyle away from cities. They might have been saving up to buy property here for a long time, he says, but the pandemic made them pull the trigger. For Jackson, it's it's one of those places where you don't really have to <laughs> you don't really have to sell. It's just a place that people, you know, they've been coming here for years. They came in here when they were a child, went to Yellowstone, and it's just been a dream of theirs. That's that's a story that I hear over and over again. The report from Jackson Hole Real Estate Associates found that sales went up across nearly all income levels in 2020. Vacant land transactions more than doubled, and prices in Star Valley flew up. 
But the biggest driver of last year's boom by far was the local luxury market. The total sales of homes priced at over $3 million alone in Jackson eclipsed $1.4 billion. That's more than all total sales in 2019. And Blog says many of the new owners are out-of-state residents looking for second homes. It is unfortunate. You know, for the local markets, it's hard to compete when you're a local with, with some of these people coming in from out of town with cash. There's simply not enough supply to keep up with the demand. Christine Walker is a board member at Shelter JH, a local housing advocacy organization. She says she would like to see the local real estate market slow down. We just seem to be continually kind of heading down this path where we're just a community that's full of folks that are advantaged and we're leaving other folks behind, which really tends to hollow out a community. The 2020 book Billionaire Wilderness describes that hollowing effect as making Teton County's division of wealth look like a barbell, with the ultra-wealthy on one side and low-income residents on the other. Walker says many working-class residents are moving to Alpine or Victor and eventually finding jobs and staying there rather than Jackson. Friends and neighbors really struggle with the fact that their children won't be able to live in the place where they were born and raised. So, can any changes be made to shift the real estate market's trajectory? Walker says some alterations to state and federal income tax structures would help, as well as upping housing density in town. Our zoning codes are really catering to building large single-family homes on parcels of land that in most places would be deemed quite low density. 97% of land in Teton County is federally owned, meaning a huge part of the lack of affordable housing is a simple dearth of space. That's good for existing homeowners who see the value of their real estate continue to rise. But Walker says the current setup helps few people overall. It protects the people that have real estate in this community who then have the, the voice and the power to maintain those policies that continue to just escalate our real estate market. Instead of, you know, we could kind of slow this down a little bit and every, more people would be able to benefit from this beautiful place. And I think that our community as a whole would benefit. Mansfield, the metal worker, has struggled to find housing himself in Jackson and says he has friends who have dealt with the same issue. He recognizes the housing crunch, but also says he might not be here at all without the opportunity to work on those multi-million dollar homes. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you can be bitter about the billionaires all we want, but when push comes to shove, you know, they do pay our bills to a large extent, probably most people in the Valley anyway. Local real estate experts expect recent trends to continue into 2021. Milwaukee, KHOL News, Jackson. The real estate market in Jackson Hole continues to set records in 2021. The total sales volume of the first quarter this year was up 77% compared to the first quarter of 2020, according to a recent report. And even luxury properties are seeing multiple offers within hours of entering the market. Among the hundreds of bills proposed during the 2021 lawmaking session at the Wyoming State Legislature was one that its sponsors said would help students better understand federal and state government. The bill failed to pass the House of Representatives Education Committee, but the conversation around it reflected the growing national debate on how American youth should learn about American history. 
KHOL's Kyle Mackey reports in a story that originally aired in March. Republican Representative and Pastor Jeremy Haraldson of Wheatland, Wyoming, says he was inspired to introduce House Bill 177 after talking with an unspecified number of students about topics like the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. As I've actually been asking questions of some of our students and asking them along these lines of, hey, you know, what did you learn about fill in the blank? And they're like, well, nothing really. And I'm like, what? Speaking while presenting his bill to the State House Education Committee last week, Haraldson also says he doesn't think the instruction students are getting is giving them a proper understanding of American history and government. In a lot of ways, it's very much tilting more towards um, more towards a, a, a liberal view of education. And because of that, I don't believe that this is being represented properly or effectively. The text of the proposed bill said it would require Wyoming school districts to provide, quote, comprehensive instruction on a bullet-pointed list of topics. But scrutiny from fellow lawmakers from across the political spectrum made clear that the four-page document fell short of that goal. Representative Kathy Connolly is a Democrat for Laramie. Representative Haraldson, do you know what the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is? I would have to look at it right now, ma'am. Sorry, Mr. Chairman and Representative Conley, I'd have to look at it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Haraldson. It's the right to vote for women. Okay. Yep. And it's not included in your bill. Representative Landon Brown, a Republican from Cheyenne, also criticized the bill for its selective list of, quote, threats to American democracy and free society, which included the political extremes of fascism and communism, religious prejudice, and identity politics. That's a very subjective and very, very pointed and skewed, if I'll say it, uh, view of our history and what, what we're going on here. Brown says he firmly believes in strengthening civics education, but that the legislature isn't the place to do it. Teton County Schools Superintendent Gillian Chapman agrees, at least on the latter point. Some of the very detailed um, decisions that they're attempting to make when it comes to specific curriculum is outside of their scope. It's the Wyoming Department of Education and the State Board of Education that sets standards for what school districts have to teach. The legislature, Chapman says, should stay at a very high level. She also says she begs to differ with Representative Haraldson about how and what Wyoming students, at least in Teton County, are learning about American history. Is our education liberal? No, I would not say that at all. Um, what we're trying to do is teach kids what happened and um, for them to develop the skills they need to fact check and make their own opinion about that. A national debate over how students learn about the country's past has escalated since the New York Times Magazine's August 2019 publishing of the 1619 Project, a special reporting initiative that aims to center the experience of Black Americans in American history, starting with the first landing of a group of enslaved Africans in 1619. The Times also partnered with a Pulitzer Center to develop curriculum materials for schools based on the project, and a wave of conservative backlash prompted former President Donald Trump to establish his own 1776 commission last September. We must clear away the twisted web of lies in our schools and classrooms and teach our children the magnificent truth about our country. The commission published its first and only report just days before President Joe Biden was inaugurated in January.
The document was widely criticized by mainstream historians, but it drew on longstanding conservative talking points, some of which then showed up in the discussion around Haroldson's bill. Slavery needs to be discussed. It needs to be brought forward and, and the different views that uh, that slavery was not um, maybe what, what it has been painted uh, in this nation completely. Haroldson also said teaching students that the enslavement of black Americans was integral to the founding of the U.S. has created a situation that's, quote, probably worse than the slavery itself. Representative Connolly was the only lawmaker to denounce his comments. The discussion regarding slavery that has happened both explicitly and implied, I find very, very problematic. And I'll just leave it at that because I think the public needs to understand that we all do not share the same perspective that we heard from the bringer of the bill. The proposed bill was voted down in committee 7-2. to two. President Biden also canceled Trump's 1776 commission on his very first day in office. But partisan fighting over education isn't likely to go away anytime soon. Kyle Mackey, KHOL News. joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked on KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local and regional news, music, and culture. Jackson Unpacked airs Wednesdays at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. You can also now listen and subscribe to the show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app. On this week's show, we're rebroadcasting some of our favorite stories from the early days of Jackson Unpacked before we launched as a podcast. Up next, KHOL music director Jack Catlin interviews Hilary Camino of St. John's Living Center about how she uses music therapy to help patients with everything from trauma to dementia. First off, can you explain what music therapy is and how it works? Music therapy is used with a multitude of populations. It's the use of music to accomplish non-musical goals. So if you think about a music teacher is using music to accomplish musical goals, and a performer is performing to be with an audience and entertain. So a music therapist, on the other hand, is using music as a tool to accomplish non-musical needs. So that might be alleviating pain, decreasing anxiety, offering a chance to connect with others, increasing nonverbal communication. And so it's a vast area of needs that music therapy can assess and work with to alleviate. How do the different parts of the brain react when they hear music? So many different things are happening in the brain, which is what makes it so incredibly impactful. You're accessing areas of the brain when engaging in music and when listening to music. So specifically when you're engaging in music or playing an instrument, you're using your body. So that's engaging the motor cortex, cerebellum, sensory cortex. You are using your eyes to read music or watch what you're doing. That's the visual cortex. You're listening to sounds and perceiving them. That's the auditory cortex. You're using your critical thinking and problem solving when you're learning an instrument or writing a song. And that's the prefrontal cortex. You're using both sides of the brain. And also it's so emotional and it's held in our memories, so deeply rooted in our memories. And so that's 
really what is so special about the use of music to help people is that there's no other stimuli that has that kind of global effect on the brain. Hillary, you were inspired by your grandmother to get into the field of music therapy. Can you tell us about that experience? I did my undergrad in music. I was very confused how I would use music in my life as a profession. And I I studied education for a while. I performed. And it was after I got my undergrad that my grandmother was actively passing. And I went and visited her. You know what it's like being in a room with someone dying. It could be a very palpable and intense situation. And I just felt this dryness in the air and there was a hymnal there. And so I picked up the hymnal and started singing How Great Thou Art. And the change in the room was palpable. Not only did I look around and see my loved ones all of a sudden opening up and sharing and expressing and crying and being able to feel their feelings. And not only that, but I looked at my grandmother and there was a change in her. Her breathing pattern changed. She started moving around a little bit and she had been, you know, nonverbal for days. And just seeing and feeling that connection that I had with her and the rest of the room and my family in that moment. And it was in that experience that I walked away knowing I want to do this every day. So how does music therapy specifically help with dementia? When someone is experiencing late stage memory loss, they can lose a lot of their abilities to communicate and be together. And so I kind of strip that away and take away those formalized interactions and verbal communication and just solely base our interactions around music. They can feel, let's say it's in a group setting, that they're able to connect with their peers and with me in a way that doesn't require them to have a conversation, which can be impossible and challenging and frustrating for people with dementia. And so we use music together and have them play instruments that are accessible to them. So the the glockenspiel or the xylophone or drums, things like that. And so they're able to communicate and be themselves in music and share that with each other. And we also use songs that they knew that is stored in their long-term memory, which is from their childhood and their early 20s, typically not after that time. They're able to recall those memories because where the brain can become damaged in certain areas, music is still accessible in all of those other areas of the brain that we talked about. So it must be thrilling to experience such a transformation in someone with the power of music. How have those experiences changed you as a person? I'm daily grateful for the work that I do because I grow so much in every interaction and session that I have. My big takeaway is what we have here on earth is the way that we can connect to one another across boundaries, across challenges with communication. And we are all humans who need to be together and connect. For more information, go to stjohns.health slash embracing aging. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson.
Environmental watchdogs have been sounding the alarm about Teton County's deteriorating water quality for more than a year, citing increased nitrate levels in southern Teton County and lightly regulated septic systems as concerns. However, a full data-driven picture of the problem wasn't available until this January. KHOL's Will Walkie reports. Here in Hoback Junction, locals have had concerns about the quality of their drinking water for a long time. Residents of the Hoback RV Park, Anana Ristad and Jeffrey Meehan, spoke publicly back in December about it. Our water sucks. I mean, I don't even think it's potable, to be quite honest. We haven't had potable water here for six months. Nothing was done in terms of any sort of offset for that. The water quality in Hoback has gotten so bad that residents of the park are being forced out by landowners, largely because of non-compliant septic systems that violate several environmental standards. The main concern is a rise in nitrate pollution, the adverse effects of which are explained in a video from the Environmental Protection Agency. Nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus are a natural part of the ecosystem. They support the growth of aquatic plants. But human activities cause an excess of nitrogen and phosphorus in the environment. Surface and groundwater becomes polluted. Nitrates are forms of dissolved nitrogen. Consuming them at high levels can be harmful to respiratory and reproductive systems and can be dangerous for fetuses and infants, according to the Water Education Foundation. Treating it, as has been done in Hoback for years, can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And while the contamination there has long been well documented, a comprehensive data set outlining the state of drinking water across the county hasn't really existed until this year. Enter the Drinking Water Quality Mapping Project and Carlin Gerard. In a way, this is not a snapshot in time at all. It's a snapshot in history. Gerard is one of the foremost experts on water quality in Teton County. For the past two years or so, he's been using samples from private wells and public water systems to clearly map out drinking water quality countywide. The final project was published earlier this year, and Gerard presented his findings to the Teton County Board of Commissioners in early March. Blues symbolize lower values ramping up to reds your yellows, oranges, reds. Each map in the project provides a detailed snapshot showing exactly where pollutants have affected drinking water, sorted by their concentration. But Gerard didn't just map out nitrates. He tracked seven other indicators, like fluoride, sulfate, and pH levels. Nitrate is the factor that most likely reflects back on humans impacting natural resources, Gerard says. But the other factors mapped in this project, which occur more naturally, also impact the county. I also think plumbers um, who install water treatment systems could benefit from this. I think real estate agents during real estate transfers, this is a great way of getting a window into issues they're clients may potentially be running into. Gerard says even gardeners could use his maps to find out why certain crops grow better than others in certain locations. He sent dentists his fluoride map and medical professionals his nitrate map. In essence, Gerard says the project is a sort of public utility. It felt as though I was the wrong person to have this data in my head. I can only do so much, whereas a lot of the problems seem to stem from broader kind of systematic failures that are outside of my control. Looking at the nitrate map, it's clear that Hoback is the reddest area in Teton County, with levels that violate EPA standards in several locations. But the west bank of the Snake River moving into South Park is another area of concern for Gerard, as well as Kelly and Alta. Seeing that there were um, small kind of hot spots in almost all of the small satellite communities that, that really operate on, on septic systems, 
that was also a pretty interesting observation that we're not entirely sure where nitrate originates from, but when you start to overlay it with these other factors, you start to get a little clearer picture that maybe wastewater really is influencing our groundwater. Gerard says the mapping project simply represents the what of what's happening. Figuring out the why is the next step, and then how we fix this. It'll take a long time for the county to undo what's already been done, but one thing that could change immediately is how local residents think about what comes out of their taps. I want this mapping effort, and I want our kind of increased emphasis on water quality to also bleed through into our personal behaviors. Recognizing that if you put uh, a bottle of pharmaceutical drugs down your drain, that that goes into our drinking water. Luckily, Gerard says the issue is getting the attention it deserves. At least one Teton County commissioner, Luther Probst, says he ranks water quality as one of his top priorities. Hoback is just the tip of the spear. If we don't better manage nitrate through septic tanks, through the two package plants, through um, livestock and wildlife management, if we don't take it more seriously, we're going to see more hobacks. At least with the new mapping project now in hand, both commissioners and Teton County residents are armed with more data to inform how we manage our water resources moving forward. Will Walkie, KHOL News. The Wyoming Game and Fish Department completed its third round of moose captures for GPS collaring in the Snake River Bridge area in late January. In our last story today, KHOL's Kyle Mackey reports on the project, which is a joint effort with the State Transportation Department aimed at reducing vehicle wildlife collisions. In a close-up video taken by the Game and Fish Department last week, just the end of a bulbous moose nose is visible against the snow. The moose's pink tongue droops out of the side of its mouth while the massive animal snores. Out of the frame, a small team, including Allie Cordemanche, is taking blood samples and doing other tests. Getting the privilege, I guess, to handle a moose, an animal that big and really majestic as a moose is really one of the coolest parts of our jobs. You know, a day like that makes you happy to be a wildlife biologist in Jackson Hole. Putting moose to sleep is a necessary part of collaring them with a GPS tracker. Cordemanche says her team has collared 23 moose in the area around the Snake River Bridge since the project launched in 2019, including six new moose last week. The idea is to collect data about moose movements ahead of a planned replacement of the bridge. So we have really excellent roadkill data for this area that shows that it is a really high mortality, high spot for wildlife vehicle collisions. But we were really lacking data on live animal movements in the area. The GPS callers record the moose's location every 30 minutes. Game and Fish gets that data every few days, which will help biologists and the state transportation department decide where to build new wildlife underpasses. And one thing they've learned? Some of these moose are crossing major highways a lot. One female, for example, has crossed either Highway 22 or Highway 390 115 times in less than two years. Cordemanche says that makes her feel confident that the underpasses will be a worthwhile community investment. She also says this year's round of captures went smoothly, thanks in part to tips from the community about where to find moose. If they're in a safe place, you know, we, we go ahead and we dart that animal with an anesthetic that basically, you know, puts it to sleep, so to speak. Excellent. Boom. 
It takes about 10 minutes between the time when we dart it and for it to, to go to sleep. During that time, we collar it, we take a number of different health samples, like blood samples. So we're collecting a lot of different information um, since we're you know, fortunate to have that moose in hand. The whole process, Cordemanche says, only takes about 20 minutes before the team is ready to administer a reversal drug. Usually within about five to 10 minutes after we give the moose that reversal drug, um, they're back up on their feet and they are usually snacking and, um, you know, getting back to being a moose. The moose also don't have to wear their new collars forever. Cordemanche says they're designed to fall off and be retrieved after two and a half years. Kyle Mackey, KHOL News. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Tune in for Jackson Unpacked every week, Wednesday mornings at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. And remember to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. <laughs>